stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. We seem to be in the midst of an upsurge in dystopian art and end times anxieties. If we as a culture don't have a sense of impending doom, we do at least have trouble imagining the future being bright and promising. Today's guest, Lucy Corrin, is here on Between the Covers to talk about her new book from McSweeney's, A Hundred Apocalypses and Other Apocalypses, a book playful both in form and content that looks at this cultural moment from every perspective imaginable. Lucy Corrin is the author of the novel Everyday Psycho Killers, A History of Girls, and the short story collection The Entire Predicament from Tin House Books. She's also the program director of the creative writing program at UC Davis, and the winner of the 2012 American Academy of Arts and Letters Rome Prize, who described her writing as follows. Lucy Corrin sounds like no one, prickly, shrewd, faintly paranoid or furtive, witty and also savage. She has something of Paley's gift for soliloquy combined with Dickinson's passionate need to hold the world at bay, that sense of a voice emanating from a Skinner box. Her achievement is already dazzling, her promise immense. Welcome to Between the Covers, Lucy Corrin. Thanks, David. So let's start with this cultural moment where we're seeing a ton of art, high art and commercial art about dystopia, the end of times, apocalyptic energy. How much do you see 100 Apocalypses as participating in this cultural moment, and how much is it a a commentary on, on what's going on in our culture around it? Well, I think that I I wrote the book because I noticed I noticed it. I don't have I don't pretend to be like a a sort of um, you know this, a, a historian who could compare our culture's fascination with the apocalyptic with other moments in history. But um, there's unquestionably like waves, and and this is one of them. And I I felt it. I felt this similarly in the '90s about the um, psycho killer narrative, and it and it was um, part of what prompted the writing of my first book. And then this was it was just uh, it was just in the air, and I wondered at my own fascination. I wondered at like the the combined um, uh, desire to keep participating and living through the end of everything, and I wondered about the pleasure of it. And I wondered about the uh, the persistence to do it repeatedly. Yeah. Well, that that brings me to this issue of juxtaposition in the book that we see s- stories that are about true apocalypse, the world truly ending, 
crumbling, exploding. Um, and then we also see that sort of juxtaposed against stories that have to do with smaller everyday things, but that are presented, presented in an apocalyptic way. And that brings up for me as the reader the sense of the slow apocalypses that are happening in our lives, like climate change, and the way that we respond so much more strongly to our car breaking down, for instance, than to actually confronting things that are happening that are truly disastrous. Is, is, that, a, is that an effect that you were going for when you were putting these two different ways of looking at apocalypse next to each other? I think what I was doing, and this is only retrospective, it's not anything that I... Um, knew I was doing while I was doing it. But if I think back on what sort of psychological thing I traced out in the book, it is that sense of like what's beyond your comprehension and then what is within your comprehension. And the thing that ties them together, exactly as you said, is the sensibility. And so if what you have is like an apocalyptic sensibility about things that are out of your control, um, one thing that seems true to me is that a person would apply that sensibility to what actually is right before them, the things that they think maybe they have a shot at, like like having a decent relationship or um, not failing at your job or any of your or, or picking something to eat that will be satisfying. Um, and that sort of sense of like of that precarious sense of like maybe I'll I'll maybe I'll win or maybe I'll lose is uh, it's conceivable. In, in the daily. Yeah. And do you find anything uh, particularly compelling about apocalypse a- as narrative? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I'm the, I'm a, the most, I'm a real um, uh, tech technology, not technology, but like, a, what get, like a technical geek about my own, about my own form. I'm in, I'm in, I'm always interested. Like my second book was all about the first person, and I just wanted to exhaust my relationship with the first person. It's the kind of thing that anybody who's not a writer like would never consider a subject matter. But um, but probably almost anybody who's tried to write understands like the the drive to like figure out your form. So yeah, I I was thinking about um, the most fictiony fiction that existed. So I was I was interested in the idea of beginnings and endings, and having been a, a writer for a, what felt like a while, um, beginning and ending and beginning and ending and beginning and ending is uh, like what you do every time you try and make something. And if you're working in fiction, um, you know they say that the easiest way to think of a story is that it has a beginning and it has a middle and it has an end. And and what apocalypse does is is take that literally. And say and just apply it to everything in the biggest way possible. And I'm interested in extremes. I'm interested in extremes in form, and I'm interested in extremes in content. Well, it's interesting because the apocalypse is actually an ending and a beginning simultaneously, exactly. isn't it? I mean, we think about the the first one with the Noah's flood. Mm-hmm. God is doing it to both destroy the world and start it anew. Exactly. And so what you have is like something that like if narrative is supposed to be about time passing, then what you have is a form that makes everything simultaneous and it makes time and it simultaneously depicts time passing and starting with um, a paradox. That's also really easy to wrap your head around is delicious. 
I have a quote here from an interview you did with West Branch Magazine. And I, I think it might have been said while you were still in the process of finishing this book. Yeah, but you, you said, it's kind of my goodbye to American or maybe particularly hipster American self-importance. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what that means with regards to 100 Apocalypses and whether that still feels true to you around what the book is doing. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that's characterized um, the time, the period of time in history that I've lived through is that the idea of whose voice matters to the larger culture has shifted. I mean, I was in college when they were trying, when they were first changing the curriculum in order to embrace the idea of the multicultural. And that conversation has evolved radically in the last, you know, 20, 25 years. But what you see is like the idea of privilege being radically called into question and that means that people in their different forms of privilege are having to question themselves in ways that they've never been asked with any force to do. And at the same time, what you have is like when, when the economy is shifting and when your sense of like global power is shifting as intensely as it is right now, it's shaking, you know, it's, it's shaking the status quo. And, um, I was interested in that in my, from where I stand myself as somebody who had a fancy education as somebody who has a, has experienced both as anybody has a variety of forms of provision, a variety of, of forms of outsiderness. And, um, and as any writer knows, wondering if what you have to say is important in any way, but this is a time in history when that's a giant question, like whose voice matters and whose voice matters in what way. And that's what I was, I was interested in exploring that sense of like, um, a lot of the voices in the, sto- in the, in the book are voices of people who thought they were okay. People who thought they were cool going, maybe I'm not cool. <laughs> yeah. And what if I'm not cool? Yeah. And while that might not be an apocalypse, it is sort of an end and a beginning at the same time, depending on who you are. I yeah. mean, all of these, like Vita, the organization that's holding magazines accountable around uh, right. huge gender disparity in both reviewers and who's being reviewed could be seen as obviously a beginning, mm-hmm. but also for other people might feel apocalyptic exactly. if they're being held under the magnifying glass. Exactly. Yes. So let's have our listeners hear a little bit of the prose and, and okay. hundred apocalypses and other apocalypses. Okay. So I'm just going to read um, four apocalypses and that might sound like a lot, but it's not that much. I'm starting um, with a, with uh, my one Halloween apocalypse, which is called zombies. Last time, he'd lived near the tracks, heard the train, and no one did anything to prepare for Halloween. Some raided the fridge for eggs, evidently. Halloween was like most days, fear in the air. It marked time in the nation, in a parade with the other holidays. One year, in that town, he made a rule for the neighborhood kids. No costumes, no candy. He got together a bag of rags, masking tape, and markers from around the house. When the kids arrived in jeans and t-shirts, he wrapped one kid in shredded sheets. Look, you're a mummy. Here's your candy. And he wrapped another one in shredded sheets. Look, you're a Vietnam vet, back from the dead. I'm a mummy, kids cried. I'm back from the dead. But here, the kids across the cul-de-sac had lined their porch with intricate pumpkins. He went over to look at them. That one's bored. That one's perplexed. That one's ambivalent, the boy said. 
pointing with a knife much too big and sharp for his body, but suited to his pirate outfit. The older sister, a girl in the 10th grade who practiced piano every evening, had used a pattern from a magazine to carve a wolf howling at the moon, with more and less pumpkin carved out to create depth, character, and shadow. She was inside the house, practicing. She was just about as close to him as the boy, but veiled through the window screen. You've got some complex pumpkins going on over here, he said to the boy. That's not complex, said the boy. That doesn't even begin to be complex. In this town, he lived near the tracks, too. But on the other side, the construction of a new development paused indefinitely, a dozen houses wrapped in Tyvek. He fixed a drink and took a chair to his porch and sat with his basket of assorted miniatures. He liked Halloween. He liked the dying and then undying. When he was a kid, he said he wanted to be a boat, and his aunt made him a boat to wear. He was the captain, and he was also the boat, the aunt explained. His parents and their friends gathered around him in their witches' hats with bright cocktails and complimented him. But he still felt like he was just the captain, walking around in a boat. This town was a lot like the town he'd grown up in, something he'd been working toward for a long time. It had been a hard bunch of years. I'm back from the dead, he'd thought, dropping the last box into his new living room. Here, though, the kids eyed him just as suspiciously. They eyed him with better vocabularies. And here, he felt himself looking at the town with as much bewilderment as he'd looked at the adults in the town where he'd been a child only now he was an adult. He walked with his drink to the center of the cul-de-sac. He turned around and around, just enough to get a little dizzy. Then he tried to aim himself home. But the apocalypse is not the wobbling away. The wobbling away is life persisting. The apocalypse is him spinning, with the drink clink-clinking, delicate potential to go faster and faster, to drill a hole into the earth with his body, or, and alternately, to dissipate centrifugally like rings through water into droplets, into air. Miracles. We watched our father take the jar to the patio on the day we had been waiting for ever since he put the spider into it with its egg sac. It was a black widow spider, which we knew never to touch in the garden, and to know by the red bow on its belly. We'd been living in the country since our stark raving mad mother started calling the apartment from her orbit. Our father lay down near the jar on his side. He was always showing us stuff around the farm. He was growing a beard, always tired and patient. There was a barn with a horse in it we were taking care of. He said a lot about learning to take care of others as a part of growing up and we watched him with eyes too big for our heads. We gathered around the jar and put our noses to it in turn, looking for the movement he said to look for in the egg sac, how you could see it was time by shadows crossing. We were getting a little bored when the babies started to come out, just like he said. They were smaller than anything, and the big mother spider, you couldn't tell if she was paying attention. The babies were spreading out over the inside of the jar, the miracle of life. They were making their ways to the air holes punched in the lid. Our father just watched and commented for our benefit. 
He put a stick to the air hole, and we watched babies crawl up it. Spiders crawl their whole lives. We watched, but some of our attention wandered. We were new to the countryside, new life surrounding us. I remember a lot of things from that place besides this. After the apocalypse, a brother of mine said, Do you remember if you were nervous with all those poison spiders radiating from the jar? Do you remember that we didn't have any insect spray because we'd just moved out there, but he had a can of hairspray, and that's what he sprayed on them, just as they were getting away? Why did we have hairspray? Was it hers? Bathing. One thing about after the apocalypse is you can't get dirt on you. I mean, you can, but you better not. It stings and itches like crazy, and I don't know about you, but I can't get anything accomplished if I don't feel clean. Plus, water's a problem, even after everything. And sand! You know, I read in a book when I was a kid about how to wash by scrubbing with sand, but now that's even worse. What would you expect? It's just another kind of dirt. Everything makes for one rash or another, some with welts, some with, well, stinking welts or welts that take over your whole body or welts that blend in with other people's welts or welts on animals and trees or the welts on the dirt and on the water. The whole point of the apocalypse was to feel clean. What a load. One more. July 4th. Got there and the ground was covered with bodies. Lay down with everyone and looked at the sky bracing for the explosions. I love that one. <laughs> in case you just tuned in, you're listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host, and we're talking today with Lucy Corrin, the author of 100 Apocalypses and Other Apocalypses from McSweeney's. You've said that you love reading from the book because of the responses you're getting that have led you to conclude that everyone has an apocalyptic fantasy life. Yeah. What do you mean by that? What I mean is that some people, if you ask them what their apocalyptic fantasy is, you know, if you just ask somebody and you just assume that they that everybody has it, and I ask somebody, uh, what is your apocalyptic fantasy or what's your favorite apocalypse? Some people will just know. They'll either know, like, you know, mine is the Mad Max kind where everybody is a kind of punk and that everything's like sexually charged and it's a desert and there's a lot of machines and there's no gas and um, it's everybody has a dog who's about to go mad at every moment. And some people will say, you know, it's an underwater one or it's whatever. It'll have a theme. It'll have a sensibility. It'll have like a sort of genre specific universe that comes with it. Um, and then other people will be like, I don't know what you're talking about. But then if I ask them, like two or three other questions, they'll they'll find one. And sometimes it's something that they dream a lot. Sometimes it's something that um, they remember feeling as a child. And the next step I find in those conversations um, is that whatever their apocalyptic fantasy is composed of, it connects with things in the rest of their life that are dear to them. And that's... And that's a wonderful discovery for me, in part because it makes the sometimes impersonal job of trying to get your book out there feel like a, a, something that's going to help me make connections with human beings in a way that um, writing does, but only imaginarily. Hmm. Yeah. 
well, p- people with their secret apocalyptic fantasy lives should really go see you read because of your apocalyptic stamps that you you oh, give yeah. for for readings. Which brings me to the this idea of form. I, I wanted to start out really talking about the content because there's so much playfulness around the form, mm-hmm. which you also do in these stamps that you've created, where people can choose to have a you know death by volcano or by flood or by bomb on their on their as stamped inside of their books but also the book itself it's really uh delightful as an as a physical object Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of uh playing with text in the margin with text of different fonts where even some text where you need a a magnifying glass to read parts of and uh i wanted to hear more about that process and the appeal of of breaking out of the box around the object that we, we read when we read a hundred apocalypses. Gosh, I've just, it's been such a part of my life. This like, do you, don't you break out of paragraphs? Um, and I, um, I've resisted it because I don't want to, I've resisted it because I have such fidelity to, um, the short story and to, um, prose fiction. And so I like to start with the most commonplace, uh, formal procedure there. I like to start with, um, paragraphs that go all the way to the end. I like to start with like a a typeface that doesn't, um, announce itself as a typeface. I, I don't have pictures. I don't like, I'd even try not to use parentheses or italics. You know, I try to keep it like super clean and oh, like a brown bag philosophy of what your your words should look like on the page. I think a lot even about like capital letters, you know, or uh, when you, or I don't like to use all caps ever. And so then if I, if I do deviate from that, it has to be either really playful or it has to be, uh, it has to really make the piece three-dimensional in a way that it wouldn't otherwise be. So I like form and content to have to do with each other. Um, I think, you know, the the Beckett philosophy of form and content unity is central to my um, poetics. But Which makes McSweeney's a nice pairing for this book with totally. their, their crazy cutout, beautiful cover. I know, the cutout. I love the fact that, like, first of all, the one of the things about the design that's so great is that the relationship between the, the title, the text and the title, and the book itself is playful where um, it looks like the hardcover on the outside is pushing the text that shows through it um, aside a little, and also it makes the text look like it's disappearing into the into the into the past or into the it's like Star Wars in or the beginning. falling off a ledge exactly sort of when you run out of space at the end of the page. Yeah, and I love that there's a hole in the book because there's so many holes in the content of the book. Um, and well, yeah. what do you see? How do you see the relationship of the three stories at the beginning and then the hundred flash fictions? The three stories are still playful with form. You, you yeah. do do fairy tale that's uh, referencing a, a Hans Christian Andersen in the margins, but they're more, in a lot of ways, and they're more close to traditional short stories than the flash fiction. So, h- how, how do you see them relating to each other within the same cover? Well, I feel like as a collection, um, the just in the simplest, just simply thinking about the length as an aspect of form, it 
it takes, it goes the shortest possible thing I can think of. And then the longest story in the book is practically a novella. Like it's right on that line. The first three stories, they, I feel like the relationship with form is different in each one. Um, Although they all have a relationship with apocalypse and the speculative. So in the first story, as you mentioned, it's a, a columnar story. There's the story is told twice, once in, a, in in marginalia and once in the body, and the story itself references the Hans Christian Andersen fairy tale, the Tinderbox, and so you have like it's a double retelling, and that in itself is really funny to me. And, and it also, it stretches style. Like part of the style is like sounds fairy tale and start part of the style sounds really like almost, almost like eighties minimalism, like, like, uh, dirty, you know? And then, um, and I like that idea of stretching style through time as I'm stretching form, um, Mm. and, and reference through time. And then the other two stories are like, um, like, they they look super normal on the page, but one of them collages in these texts, these found these found documents uh, from um, mental asylums, and so it's in some ways a really bizarre story, but it's presented in a really recognizable form. Hmm. And then um, and then the last story in that that precedes the hundred apocalyptic shorts is um, called Godzilla versus the Smog Monster, and that story is like so recognizable. It's just a father-son coming-of-age story, except California's burning across the country while it's happening. And in some ways, I feel like that story, I want it to earn me the right. I want by that time, I want if if a person reads this book all the way through, by the time they get to Godzilla versus the Smog Monster, by the time they finish that story, I want them to really believe that I know what I'm doing so that then they'll go with it when I get really silly in the apocalypses. They'll know that I'm silly, but I'm also not silly. Mm. Yeah. That's a really interesting strategy. Yeah. And I, I like how in the, in the two of the last long short stories, Mad Men and, and then the one uh, Smog Monster, they both have to do with things that feel apocalyptic that happen to everybody. Puberty. Yeah. I mean, obviously we have the, the issue of mental illness in Mad Men, but we also have the issue of, right. of puberty, the metamorphosis and the apocalyptic metamorphosis of of puberty, and then California is in that story serves as a, a place of dreams, like a place where you could go mm-hmm. to escape from your horrible life. Absolutely. And if California is gone, that's the apocalypse more than the literal burning yeah. of California. It seemed like it's really, yeah. really beautifully rendered. Thanks for thanks for reading it that way. And, and lastly, in terms of playfulness, I've heard you mention that you really submitted a lot of these flash fiction pieces before you felt like they were fully complete when you were submitting them to magazines. And I want to hear a little bit about that process and if that was a freeing up process or a challenge to yourself and and what the purpose of, of generating short fiction in that manner and then exposing yourself around it when you felt like um, maybe the edges were still rough. Yeah. I mean, I, as I, as I, as I mentioned, um, I have a real fidelity to the traditional short story as a, as a, as a pursuit. Um, and one of the things that's so attractive I've found to me about the, about writing short stories is this sense that you can make it perfect. And, 
it and the way that I was taught, that's what it was all about is like taking language so seriously and treasuring it so much that you were going to, um, choose every word and arrange every word. And it could, and it had this possible, like it could become this crystalline globe shining in the night, you know, that the short story as a form had the potential for that in a, in a way that like, um, wasn't what novels were for. And, um, and I, I worked very hard with that aesthetic in mind and with that history of the story in mind, and I still treasure it. But more and more, I've started to own the part of my writing life that knows that that's in itself is a fiction, that even if I make something perfect in the next moment, because time passed, it will be different. And then in the next moment, it'll be different. And then that doesn't even take into the account that it moves into the world. And if people read it, then um, their brains are doing their work on it. And so, so I know sort of intellectually that the, that this, the text changes every second and that I have no control over it at all. And that I have no authorship or whatever. Right. But in order to, but there's something so valuable about the fiction of that kind of authority that's absolutely connected with the idea of the apocalyptic and the idea of writing and the idea of like whether or not you can stop stop time or maneuver maneuver time in that way. Hmm. So what was great about what I tried to do with this project was get a little less precious with it. Like what if I don't even what if I stop kidding myself that I have control over this narrative? What if I stop kidding myself that there's some moment when it's going to be perfect? What if I do what I can and then I stop agonizing and then I just send it out and I see what happens when some editor looks at it and they like it or they don't like it? And it was it, it was it was it was freeing, right? And it was also surprising and it confirmed what I thought, which is if I sent out six stories and I thought that one of them was done and one of them was ragged, just as likely the editor would think the opposite. Hmm. Yeah. That's really interesting. Can you share a little bit about what you're working on now? Well, now I'm writing a novel. I, 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 stretched, I stretched the story form for myself in one way in my first collection and in a very different way in this, in this story collection. And my first book was a, a novel, and it was a novel that was... Um, that embraced the fragment in a lot of ways that was, um, that, that had a, that, uh, that was episodic. And I wanted to write a novel that tried to be as smooth as possible and formally. So like I started my, a lot of the writing of this novel started where I, I decided not to put paragraphs in at first. I'm putting paragraphs in now, but, um, but I didn't want to, assume where the paragraphs would go. I wanted to say like, what if it's just one block? Um, and I, I try to wipe away my assumptions of the rhythmic work and the conceptual work that paragraphing does. Do you feel like that is in response to all of these short flash fiction pieces? Absolutely. Right. Yeah. So it's in dialogue with what you've Mm -hmm. just completed. Yeah. It's like, what if I, 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 the first thing I was like, what I wanted to do something where instead of, um, instead of collage being something that's about a fragmented world, I'm thinking less, and I'm not the only one, like a lot of writers are doing this. Um, I'm thinking less and less about 
our experience as fragmented and more and more of our experience as just layered and, and in motion. And so I want the form to be about that, which is a, which is a smoother thing. It's not a frenetic experience. It should, it should be like a, like a, uh, a series of motions. Hmm. Yeah. I look forward to reading it. Well, thank you. It was great having you on Between the Covers. Thanks so much, David. So we're talking today with Lucy Corin, the author of 100 Apocalypses and Other Apocalypses. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Neiman, your host. Mm-hmm.